Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. So, you'd like to believe in God, but you wonder, if Cain was the third human being, the son of Adam and Eve, how is it that when he was banished, he worried about danger at the hands of other people? Just who were these others? Also, Cain had a wife. Where did she come from? How did we get all these people if Adam and Eve alone lived in the Garden of Eden and Cain was their first child after the banishment? Well, my friend, you're asking an excellent question, one that frequently gets ignored or shoved under the rug, I should say. I'll try not to do that. Let's first read the passage in question. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Remember, he had killed his brother Abel. That's the context of this. That's why God's banishing him. So anyway, again, Cain is saying, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. That's not the same Enoch as that dude that flew up into heaven or didn't fly, was raptured up into heaven. This is a different Enoch, Enoch son of Cain. So where were all these other people that Cain was going to be afraid of? How was it that Cain had a wife? Excellent questions. Certainly, this is an occasion for wishing the Bible provided more information, a lot more information. But we need to understand in beginning here the purpose and structure of Genesis. Genesis means beginning. So let's talk about the beginning of the beginning, at least from the literary point of view. Moses, the author, what was his reason? What is the beginning of his reason for writing Genesis? You see, misleading as the title might be, Genesis wasn't actually written to supply detail about the creation of the world. It was written as a prologue to the exodus from Egypt, the escape of the Hebrews from Egypt, the deliverance of God, and the law of Moses that they received right afterwards. The exodus and the giving of the law are the pivotal events of the Old Testament, just as the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are the pivotal events of of the New Testament. The literary structure itself makes this rather obvious. Think about it. Just think about this. In only a handful of chapters, Genesis rushes through the creation of the world, the fall into sin, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel. Only when we get to the story of Abraham do they crank the narrative down and provide intricate detail. We learn about Abraham's livestock. We learn about Abraham's tents. We learn about Abraham's sex life. And very important, we learn about God's promise to Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac. Then they move on to Jacob, whose name changes to Israel, all the way up to the time when as a result of Joseph, the 12 families, 12 tribes of Israel are living in Egypt. You see, a prologue to Exodus. Genesis is 50 chapters in length. Only the first 11 chapters speed from creation to fall to flood to Babel all the way up to Abraham starting in chapter 12, the origin of the Israelites, which God wanted to give us detail about. 
Yes, a prologue. Genesis is to Exodus and the remaining books of the law what the Hobbit is to the Lord of the Rings. And in writing Genesis, Moses is apparently starting with a quick review of events that his fellow Hebrews had already understood in detail. Events that had been passed down generation after generation. Like you, I wish we had more detail of those early events. But we don't. We have to deal with that. I would gladly trade half the chapters of Leviticus or two-thirds of the chapters of Leviticus, maybe even all of the book of Leviticus, for more information about the creation of the world, the Garden of Eden, just exactly what went on, all the stuff we're really curious about. However, all I can do is speculate. For what it's worth, I consider it reasonable speculation. I do not believe Cain was the first child born to Adam and Eve. I believe he was the first child born in pain. Indeed, that is what Cain's very name means. Genesis 4.1, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. The suggestion seems to be that of a difficult birth, which would make sense if Cain was Eve's first child born in mortality. Presumably, women in their original unfallen state did not experience pain in childbirth. As a matter of fact, we're told that pain in childbirth was one of the provisions of the curse after they fell into sin. Before leaving the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were immortal human beings. Keep in mind that the command to reproduce came from God while they were still in the garden. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There is no reason to believe that this command was not carried out immediately. Neither do we have any idea how long Adam and Eve were in the garden carrying out the command before they fell into sin. It may take us only five minutes to read the story, but that doesn't mean they were only in the garden for five minutes. It might have been a thousand years. It might have been 10,000 years. They were, after all, immortal beings. My suggestion, therefore, is that an entire community was banished from Eden and that Adam and Eve were the federal heads of this community. I realize that such a controversial theory will raise all kinds of questions. Here are some of the questions that I frequently get when I'm lecturing. But the Bible says Adam was 930 years old when he died. So how could he have lived in the garden thousands of years? My friends, I'm not saying I know how long Adam lived in the garden. I am merely pointing out that nobody else knows either. As an immortal man, created to live forever, his age would have been irrelevant. Perhaps the need to count years was unnecessary while Adam was still in Eden. As a result of the fall into sin, Adam's days are now numbered, and the 930 figure might possibly be a listing of his mortal years. Another question, but Bob, wouldn't this idea change our view of a young earth and a six-day creation? Those who believe in a young earth do start by counting Adam's age and come up with a figure of how old they believe the earth is. Yes, this idea would be challenged. As for the six-day creation, in my book, I talk about how the Hebrew word for day, that word is yom, the Hebrew word for day, could also refer to an event. Not necessarily a 24-hour period of time, but an event. And that we may simply be reading about six stages of creation. Having said that, young earth creationists make a better case than people give them credit for, and I believe their data should be examined 
with an open mind. For the sake of this present discussion, let's just say that even a literal six-day creation fails to comment one way or the other on how long Adam and Eve were in the garden, since in the garden we're reading about an event that took place after creation. Yeah, but Bob, according to this theory, an entire population would be punished for something Adam and Eve themselves did. Would this be fair? Excellent question. Possibly the entire population participated in the sin. Possibly they didn't. It is difficult to imagine people suffering for the misdeeds of their leaders. This is a hard truth to swallow. And yet, this is just exactly what the Bible tells us at times. For example, God told King David plainly that the Israelites would suffer for his own personal disobedience. David, against God's will, had decided to take a census of Israel. Here is how God responded. I'm reading from 2 Samuel 24. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. I think David was making a very wise choice. Given the choice between being sick or coming under the murderous hands of evil human beings, I think we have a better chance there. Anyway, it says it's still very tragic. So the Lord sent a plague on Egypt, it says, from that morning until the end of the time designated and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. A horrific story, and yet, on the other hand, it seems kind of weird. It's like God sending a prophet to David saying, I'm going to give you a multiple choice about how you're going to suffer. Multiple choice punishment. Oh, I'll take uh, the plagues for 10, Johnny. Okay, two things here to sober this up a little bit. First of all, do not mistake this for generational curses within families. That's another whole talk. That's another whole show. I actually have a detailed show about that planned. Generational curses did exist in the Bible, do exist today. They can be broken. But this isn't a generational thing. This is about a king presently ruling and people presently under his dominion. And when people suffered for the sins of their leaders, their kings, they often participated with these kings. We see that in all kinds of stories in the Old Testament, even though we're not seeing that detail here. And again, even less detail in Genesis, but getting back to Genesis, since that's the subject at hand, we should bear in mind that even the most conventional theology of Adam and our sin nature, biblical theology, theology very backed up by the Bible, the most conventional theology of Adam and our sin nature teaches that all of us as Adam's descendants are born with a sin nature that we did not ask for. Paul discusses this in Romans chapter 5, and as if anticipating our objection, he goes on to point out that if we are unhappy with our association with Adam, we can change associations and receive the forgiveness of Christ. He, too, bestowed something we did not ask for or deserve. The righteous life that Christ lived was credited to our account, and our sin was credited to his. This is one of the reasons Scripture refers to Christ as the second Adam. And so, my friends, if we are unhappy about the way we were born, the solution is to become born again. 
This is Bob Siegel speculating when the speculation is necessary, such as where did all these other people come from when Cain was banished, but making the obvious obvious when the theology is clear, and thankfully, the theology of Christ is crystal clear. The Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.